Second Corinthians chapter 5, reading verses 9 to the end. Hear the word of God. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The grass withers and the flower fades with God's holy and errant Word. It abides forever. May He bring His blessing to us as we hear it. You know, it's been a bit of a challenge with this series on the church in taking particular subjects and dealing with them all in one sermon. The series is about the church, and yet each of the subject matters that we have tackled thus far could of themselves be mini-series, and we could really stretch this all out. For your sake, I do try to exercise self-control, especially when it comes to the issue of evangelism, Because like worship, one message is not going to cover everything that is there for us. But the hope of this message is that you will acquire that zeal that the gospel deserves, not for any purpose of guilt, of of conscience. You know, it's easy to take the subject of evangelism and try to guilt you into it. But its purpose this morning is to show you why we are evangelists. Small e, every one of us. Because of what God has done for us in Christ and what He has given us in Christ. As I noted last week, the labors of the church are worship and evangelism. And that is essentially a nutshell of all that God expects of us. To worship Him. And worship itself, as we saw last week, has various 
connotations in various spheres and when that where that happens. But particularly today, as as we gather and assemble as God's people and as His church, worship here is is something that God desires and calls us to give. Evangelism is the work that we do because of worship. Worship and evangelism are not mutually exclusive to each other. Though you will see churches sometimes conflicting over what they do better, whether it is worship or evangelism. And you will see many churches usually try to excel in one versus the other. But they're hand in glove. Together they come and meet us as the calling and the mission of the church. And evangelism is very specifically set before us as a mission. A mission to the world. What we read from Matthew 28 as that covenant renewal time. It isn't a passage that speaks about us being involved in foreign missions. It speaks about us being involved in that mission of evangelism. And we are to go to the nations in that idea of spreading out from our center and reaching out to more and more and more people with the gospel message. Evangelism is the church's mission to the world. It's mentioned several times in Scripture. Remember when Jesus began to call His disciples, His apostles... Did He say to them in the very beginning, I am choosing you so that you can set a foundation for the church? Remember what His first call to them was? Come and follow Me and I will make you fishers of men. You're going to go out and you're going to stop being fishermen for your livelihood and for your family and you're going to go and be fishermen for My kingdom. You're going to win souls to Me. We heard from Matthew 28, Go and make disciples. And again in Acts 1 verse 8, You will be witnesses to Me. It's an interesting that He chooses the preposition to and not of. You will be witnesses to Me, to all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Lord has bestowed upon us a most precious gift, His Gospel, and says, go now and make it known to others. Some of you may not know, but that word witness in the New Testament, every time you read that word witness, and sometimes when you read the word testimony, you know what the Greek word is? Martyr. Christ wants us to be martyrs to Him. Not always to the end that we are killed. That's the general understanding that we have of the word martyr as someone who dies for the faith. But there is a sense, as we see even from 2 Corinthians 5, we're told in verse 15 that we no longer live for ourselves and we have died with Christ and in Christ. We no longer live to ourselves. We live to Him. We live to serve Him. And being an evangelist was Jesus' mission. You read the Gospel of Luke, Luke 5.32. You read chapter 15. I encourage you to do that this afternoon. 
And, and you read those parables about Jesus going to, to sinners, to call sinners to repentance. You read of Luke 19 when he comes to Zacchaeus' home. Every time there you see him saying, My mission has been to come and to seek and to save that which is lost. <laughs> And now that He has ascended into heaven, He has bestowed that mission upon the church. We are following after Him in this. I do hope that it is everyone's desire, your great desire, to evangelize people. I'm going to define that word shortly. But I hope that is your desire. I don't know if it is. I hope afterwards it will be even more... fervent desire. But in saying that, I know it is a great struggle for most. We feel the confines and the pressures of our society and our workplaces that say, keep your faith to yourself. Of course they don't want to hear. Of course Satan has blinded them. But you know, the Lord has never told us to keep our faith to ourselves, has He? And I know that's one of the greatest challenges. I've been there in those workplaces and in those companies that speak about faith being a personal thing, no proselytizing, and even more and more as we move into socialistic attitudes as a society, that is is spoken more powerfully against the mission that we have been given. So it is a challenge. It is a struggle. You have those lines that you're walking. But I have to say, from experience, that if you're in Christ, there's going to be times you can't help but cross those lines. Because we are His witnesses. We are martyrs to Him. And I want to say that before we look at this passage more in depth, that evangelism is everyone's labor. We are not hyper-Calvinists just because we uphold the doctrine of election and predestination does not make us axiomatic those kind of people who don't believe in evangelism. We do. We're confronted with some who leave it up to just simply the work of the church, whatever that means. It's not a new sentiment, but it is one that still hangs around. William Carey, those of you who know him, one of the foremost fathers of the modern mission movement, when he wanted to go to India and bring the gospel to that country, he was challenged by those who said, we don't need to. When God pleases to convert the heathen, He'll do it without consulting you or me. (laughs) That was the sentiment spoken against Him. That hyper-Calvinism. It's a bad word. But it still occurs. And it occurs when we want to step back from our responsibility to be that witness for Christ. Nor does evangelism simply belong to the minister or elder or elite people of the church. Acts 8.4 speaks of those 
who when the pressures of persecution came upon Jerusalem and they had to flee for their lives. They were scattered. And and it says those who were scattered went everywhere spreading the Word. They, They carried it with them. We get the many exhortations in Paul's letters about not being ashamed of the Gospel. But even more, when you read about how we are to prepare ourselves for each day and to go out and to meet this world, how we are told in Ephesians 6 that we must put on that armor of God so that we have an ability to stand and withstand Satan and his schemes and and this world that confronts us with its immoral conduct. What is the part of the armor of God that we are called to put on? Have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, ready yourself every day, dear Christian, to be able to speak of God's gospel of peace to those whom you meet. It's part of who we are because we belong to Christ. It's your labor. And it brings us to, as well, what is evangelism? And in answering that question, we begin with what it is not. (laughs) And, And we must understand this. And as I give these negative aspects of what evangelism isn't. (laughs) It's not to say that these aren't sometimes helpful. But evangelism proper is very specific. Evangelism is not your personal opinion about faith. It's not you apologizing and saying, well, this is what I believe. Truth is truth. (laughs) And it stands as truth, whether someone believes it or not. (laughs) And the truth is, when it comes to evangelism and the gospel that we bring to the world, the truth is, there is no other way. And so it's not my opinion. It's not my personal belief. Nor is evangelism personal testimony. Let me tell you what God did for me. It it may be wonderful, and, and don't take that as a negative may be wonderful how the Lord has transformed your life. But you are not everyone. (laughs) And all of our journeys of grace, while there may be some similarities with others, each one is unique because God's grace is dealing with us, who we are, where we have come from, how we are walking. (laughs) And my experience is not going to be the same as yours. And your experience isn't going to be the same as someone else's, especially to those whom you're witnessing to, especially if you come and you say to them, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. And it's all about this big, new, transformed life you're living. And you'll get this response simply of of an unbelieving heart that will look and say, well, that's great. I'm glad it makes you happy. And it falls short. Why? Because evangelism is more than your testimony. It's not apologetics, though apologetics can be useful. It's not you trying to reason with someone about a philosophical point. Nor is it about results. You can witness to a hundred people in this coming week and not see one converted. 
Does that mean that your labor is in vain? Isaiah 49. We've labored in vain. No, you haven't. It's very interesting. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the three big prophets were all told by God, I am sending you out to proclaim my word, to be a witness of my testimony, and no one's going to listen to you. I want to say in reflection of that, we live in the time of grace. though. We live in a time when God has said, I will bless my word. I will prosper my gospel. So it's not a labor in vain that nothing is working. But evangelism is work. It's hard. It's difficult. And sometimes we think there's something wrong because we're not getting the results. That may be true. But we labor not for what we will see with our eyes. We labor for the glory of God and the name of Christ. We are witnesses to Christ. And that foremost is what we need to understand. And so all of that being said, what is evangelism? Evangelism is striving to persuade people of their need to be reconciled to God by calling them to believe in the gospel and repent of their sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Persuading and calling. That's what evangelism is. Striving to persuade people of their need to be reconciled to God by calling them to believe in the gospel and repent of their sins in the name of Jesus Christ. That was Jesus' message. He said to the people, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Some might want to simplify it. I just think the simplification of it takes away the emphasis. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The difficulty is it leaves out even the name of Christ. Because though we are redeemed beggars before God, (laughs) feeding upon Christ, we are called to persuade people. Be reconciled to God. And before us in this text are three ways that God has enjoined all of us as a church all of us as a church to evangelism. And the first and foremost reason we'll spend our our time on this. The way that God has enjoined us is by presenting to us the Father's reconciliation. God wants you to understand what a glorious gift being reconciled to Him is. And you see that in verses 18 to 21. The Father's reconciliation is set before us. And what God is saying, Church, do you know what I am at work doing in this world? And you look there at verse 19, and what is God doing? God the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. That's what He's doing. If you are a believer, that's what He's done for you. (laughs) 
He's working to reconcile sinners to Himself through Jesus Christ. And that word reconciliation, it's it's one of the great words of Scripture that speak about a renewed relationship with God. It flows out of what it means to be justified. That is, what it means to have your sins pardoned and for you to be accepted by God. But it's the work of God reconciling you to Himself. And what is reconciliation? It's that removal of enmity that exists between us and God so that peace can be enjoyed by all. Do you realize what wall of hatred exists between you and God and between God and you? A wall of enmity that has come because of our fall into sin and of God's judgment upon us? You think what God says in Isaiah 48, the very end of that chapter, He says, there is no peace for the wicked. And who are the wicked? The wicked are anyone who are outside of His saving mercies in Christ. It's not just that tyrant that rises up and does evil in warfare. It's not just that wicked criminal who does an atrocity against another person. The wicked are those who have cast off God and says, I will not obey this man or this person who who has created me. That's how Scripture defines the wicked. And God says there's no peace for them. And God, seeing that, has come and done a wondrous work through His Son so that peace may be enjoyed with God. If you don't know this verse, memorize it. But Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, again, justified, it means having our sins pardoned and God accepting us as righteous, not as sinners. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I dare to say that for most of us who have been Christians for any length of time, we have looked at that peace we have with God and we just presume it. And God is aware of that. And that's why He goes on in this text to explain to us how He worked that peace. It's not just amazing, but we see here it's unfounded love toward sinners. Because for God to work that peace so that we could be reconciled to Him, it required the removal of hostility and hatred that we have to Him. It requires true justice to be served. Not like any kind of justice that we see in this world. I saw a, a, a video, a courtroom scene this past week of a father in the States whose son was brutally murdered. And the guy that committed the murder, he, he was getting a lesser sentence 
because he was pleading mental instability. And the father got up and said, there's nothing wrong with his mind. He knew what he was doing. He chased my son. My son ran from him. He shot at him. My son hid under a car to get away from him. He went down and shot at him. That's not a mental issue. That's a heart of hate. There's really very little in the way of justice that we understand here on earth because we've moved away from understanding justice from God. Do you know what it is for God to serve justice? That because we have defied Him, because we have fallen in Adam, because our first parent committed that act of rebellion against God, we have inherited that nature of sin. It belongs to every one of us. And if you don't believe it... (laughs) Just ask your mom and dad how you were as a child. And the struggles they had with every one of us to teach us to lovingly obey. And God's justice is every sin deserves death. Not just physical death. Sin deserves that eternal death. And for us to be reconciled, that justice has to be served. Otherwise, God Himself is not just. And God has served His justice against us in His Son. And this is what what is brought before us, the, the, the terms of reconciliation with God. God has not only worked that reconciliation, He has offered up what needs to be done to reconcile us. This is the Father's work. God has pursued this reconciliation with us. We have not pursued it with Him. But He has with us. We experience that reconciliation. We receive it when we embrace it by faith. We see what the Father offers. But my friends, we have done nothing to work toward it. God has the sinfulness of our soul and the offensive rebellion and and, and the transgressions we commit against God and the punishment, the wrath of God, that divine justice of God that was upon us. None of that is removed. That's the enmity, the wall of enmity, hatred that exists between us and God. None of that can be removed except by God. And you see verse 18 and 19. Isn't that what we're told here? All things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. God has done this. And He has done this in His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You come to verse 21. My friends, here is the Gospel in its simplest yet profoundest form. God the Father made Jesus Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's what God has done. 
He made His Son to be sin for us. He has taken the eternal Son of His love who was without sin, without transgression or iniquity. And He was made sin. How was He made sin? Isaiah 53. God took Him and began to wound Him and to strike Him. That is, He began to punish Him for our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He made Him sin by taking our sins and placing them upon His Son and then punishing His Son in our place. That's the Gospel. That's the reason for the cross. And and if our hearts are, are unmoved, by looking to that and seeing what God has done. We don't know the Gospel. That isn't all that He's done. In His Son, God makes us righteous in Jesus. Because as God takes what is of us and places it upon His Son, He takes what is of His Son and He places it on us. That's what that word imputation means. Not imputing their trespasses. Not holding their sin against them because Jesus has paid that penalty for their sins that He can now say to them, here is righteousness that you do not possess, but I give it to you. It is of My Son. And when I see you, I see you clothed in Him. All his Jesus had all of our sinfulness, all our iniquity and transgressions placed upon him. He had all of that wrath, that divine justice, that eternal death and separation from God that we deserve. He had all of that placed on him. And as God's justice was served and our sin's debt paid, God then takes the glory of His sinless, righteous Son. And He places that on us. Isn't it wonderful? God looks and He says to those who say, Christ, I believe You died for me. God looks and He says, wash clean. You're clean. You're clean. And here is righteousness that you need so that we can be reconciled. He's done that. To be reconciled with God. We're at peace with Him. How is it today that, dear Christians, you can get down... I use this example all the time because this is real life as a Christian. How is it today that you can get on your knees to God and say, Lord, that sin that I've been doing all week, I did it again. Oh God, can you forgive me? And He says, of course. My Son paid the debt of that sin. Confess it and I will wash you clean. You will be my righteous one. Isn't that amazing? That's the peace we have with God. The peace that God has worked. Reconciliation. 
And why do we begin there with that? Because God is saying, if you know this, then understand, as my church, as my people, I am committing this word of reconciliation to you to go and speak to others. Because you know, the thing about the Gospel as we present it, it is the one thing that every one of us in Christ share the same. Our journey to God's grace may be different. Our, our level of visible sinfulness and, and, and uh, things that we were more accustomed than perhaps others to falling into sin for are different. But the one thing that is true for all of us, we have believed Jesus has died in our place, has taken away our judgment, and the righteous sacrifice of Christ now cleanses us from all our sins and His righteousness is my garment. And that is what Christ has done for us. And He says to you now, go and share the good news. I am committing this gospel to you. And what do we hear in Isaiah 52? How beautiful are the feet that go and share this good news. Beautiful feet. The feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Going out and saying to others, be reconciled. That's what's been committed to us. And my friends, that that is not a guilt trip. Do you know that reconciliation with God? That's the greatest impetus you have for going out. <laughs> You see in verse 19 and verse 20, he says that very thing. This has been committed to us, the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. And as we go out, it's as if God is pleading through us. Be reconciled. Evangelism is just that. Us taking up this ministry, this service of reconciliation as God's ambassadors. The Father pleading with sinners through the Word we speak. Begging people. That's that's the actual understanding of that word pleading. He's begging people through us. Be reconciled to me. The Father wants peace with sinners. And my friends, that is amazing. Because He doesn't need us. And yet, He is pleased to do this. Well, the next two come very quickly. But the second impetus, if you will, for evangelism comes in verses 14 and 15. And it's pretty much the same, only this is reflective of Christ's love. And Paul says there in verse 14 that the love of Christ compels us. When you stop and you consider what Christ has done for you, He has died the death that you deserve. He rose to give you life that you not only do not deserve, but could never gain on your own. Christ has loved you. And when He talks about that love of Christ there, He's talking about that that demonstration of willing submission 
to endure the full weight of our sins unto death and to do endure the full weight of God's wrath that was against us. To endure the curse of death itself and that separation with God. To endure, you know, this is the thing about death. To endure that separation of the soul from the body. Death is, I say this before, but I say it again. No one is ever ready to die in the sense of, I want to die. As it gets closer, we, we understand the sense from a Christian perspective, are they ready to be with God? <laughs> Isn't that the greater question? And the love of Christ is what has made us fit to be with God. Because He endured the death we deserve. (laughs) For us to receive freely forgiveness and healing, reconciliation, acceptance, love, blessing from God, an eternal home in the presence of God. The love of Christ has won this for us. And what does Paul say of this love? This compels us. <laughs> Literally, Christ's love so presses upon my soul, has so laid hold of my life that I cannot help but live for Him who died for me. <laughs> and that's what it comes down to. How can I not witness to the glory of His name? It can't be helped. <laughs> So amazing is His love. And you see again, it's not that guilt trip into evangelism. It's that awareness. Has the Father reconciled me? Does Christ love me? And if your answer is yes to both of those questions, then the response is, I will go. (laughs) Because we have been fitted in the Lord with all that we need to be evangelists. His love. And the last, you see it in verses 10 and 11, and this might be a bit of a guilt, a guilt trip. But if the Father's reconciliation and the Lord Jesus' love for you doesn't motivate you, then this should. The fear of the Lord. The terror of the Lord. You will stand before Christ in judgment. He will say, did you? And you will be judged. We know as Christians, and some of you are probably thinking, well, we're, we're not going to be sent to hell for this. No, probably not. We failed more times than we have succeeded in witnessing. That's probably true for most of us. But if our attitude is presumption, I don't have to worry about that day because at least I'll be in heaven. Then, then our attitude and the motive of our heart is not standing in fear of disobeying God. And that's what he's getting at here. Don't, don't willingly disobey. Let the fear of the Lord rest upon you. I will be judged not by how well I've done, but by faithfulness. And it will be accounted. And look what he says there. The terror of the Lord, knowing therefore, verse 11, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We beg. 
you need to know what lies before every sinner is death. Are you ready to die and be judged by the Lord? And knowing that terror that not only waits for us, but knowing that terror that waits for those who are outside of Christ. Why do you think Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save the lost? Because He, as Lord of hell, knows what hell is all about. Even before He died. Friends, God has committed to us this ministry because it is His work in this age of grace and salvation. The Father does not delight in the death of any, but rather desires that all should repent. (laughs) Repent, repent. Why should you die in your sins? Why should you die in your sins when He has offered a way of life and truth? My friends, let Let the Father's reconciliation, the love of Christ, so fill your soul that you cannot help but witness of His grace to the lost. Prepare your feet with this gospel and be the one through whom the Father is pleading with sinners. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray.